Good morning. It's good to see everybody out there this morning. It's an honor to be able to stand before you again this morning and uh, deliver God's Word to you. As we continue our summer series on what makes a healthy church, last week, if you were here, we talked about the gospel and the importance of the gospel and the necessity of the gospel being preached from a healthy church. This morning, we're going to continue it. We're going to look at the biblical doctrine of conversion or what we commonly refer to as being born again or being saved. And it's our prayer this morning that if someone's here this morning that does not know Christ as a personal Savior, that today, not through what Pete Johnson says, but through the power of the gospel, through the power of God's Word, someone will be drawn to Christ. And also, if there's folks here struggling, that your answers as well will be answered out of God's Word this morning. So before we open up and read in God's Word... Uh, Let's pray. Our most kind and gracious Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for the opportunity to stand here to proclaim your word. I pray, God, that you will remove me. I pray, God, you'll speak through me and to me, God, as we open up your word and we see, God, what your word has to say about conversion, about being born again, about being saved, about what we just sang about, finally making it home. I pray, Father God, that your message will go out and and power of the Holy Spirit. I pray, Father God, that as we leave this place today, we can say it was good to be in the house of the Lord. We ask these sayings, Christ's holy and precious name. Amen. I'm trying something different this week. Last week, I tried to use my glasses in a smaller font. Uh, this week, I've increased my font to like 36. So, looks like I have a lot of notes. It's just big font. You guys probably can see that in the back. So, Lord willing, I won't have an awkward pause. If I do, I'll just play it off and intend like I meant to do that. Well, I invite you to open up this morning to Matthew chapter 7. We're going to look at, right from the get-go, something that is somewhat kind of shocking and just kind of like in your face, a gospel text. The interesting thing about this section of Scripture, Matthew chapter 7, right before what Jesus is saying in Matthew chapter 7, we read where Jesus is talking about, be careful of false teachers or false prophets and preachers because they're not delivering the truth. And you can tell they're not delivering the truth by their fruits. In other words, what they're producing in regards to false converts. And then underneath this section of Scripture that we'll read, a story that we're all familiar with is the man who bid his house upon the rock. Remember that? We used to do that song when we were little. And Jesus said, if you hear these words and you apply them, you obey them, you'll be like the wise man who built his house upon the rock. And when the storms came, the struggles came, his house stood firm. But if you don't do these things, you'll be like the foolish man who built his house upon the sand. And when the storms of life came, his house crashed And the Bible says, and great was the fall of it. So as we read in Matthew chapter 7, Jesus says this. says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. But the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, he's talking about that day when we all stand before God. Many will say to me, Lord, Lord. Did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do mighty works in your name? 
This is the response Jesus gives. And then I will declare unto them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Wow, as we take a big gulp. Those are hard words to take. So what is Jesus actually saying in this text? Well, we can't spin it any other way than what Jesus is implying here. I think it's pretty simple. Jesus is, in plain English, telling us that there are many people who believe that they're born again, who believe that they're going to heaven, and they're not. Jesus discounts their claim to gain heaven right here. So if this is the case, then what are we to do this morning about conversion? Where do we stand this morning in regards to being born again? Are we truly born again? Do we know for a fact that when we die, when we pass from this earth, that we'll go to heaven like we've sung about this morning? You know, we live in a world and we rub shoulders with a man-centered philosophy every day. Just about every single one of us do that. And this world looks to transform us into its image so much that we don't even know how much we have become infected with the world. In 2018, in our great United States of America, the philosophy or the standard for living has become this. And every man did what was right in his own eyes. We read that statement back in Judges. We live in a culture where everything is okay. And everybody is okay. So if the person who thinks they're okay is okay with being okay, it's not okay, then who are we to say anything different? And unfortunately, the church, not our particular church, but when I say the church, I'm talking about what we call the universal church. And those who would say they're part of the universal church has accepted this worldly philosophy as well. They've adopted a socially acceptable gospel where all roads lead to heaven. And any religion can make it to heaven. It's just in a different set of circumstances or rules. We live in a culture where philosophy has been added added to the truth. Logic has been added to the truth to make it more acceptable to the intelligently elite. Our churches have made the hard gospel of the Bible, when I mean the hard gospel, the fact that salvation is through Jesus Christ only. That's it. What he did when he died for us, his death, his burial, and his resurrection. That's the hard truth of the gospel. But many churches have made that hard truth of the gospel a sort of soft serve, serve yourself buffet. So whatever you choose, if it's okay with you, if it feels good to you, then that's okay. But this mindset, this philosophy totally contradicts God's word. As we talked last week what the true gospel was, which is Christ's substitutionary death, a sacrifice made in our stead, his burial and his resurrection is the gospel. Now you may be saying, well, I thought you preached the gospel last week. Well, like I said, every verse, if you open up the Bible, the gospel's in it. And it's my hope that as after these two weeks, you've heard me in my southern accident explain the gospel and conviction that you too, as you open up God's word, you'll see, man, Pete was right. It's right there. The gospel's, man, the gospel's right there. You cannot get away from the gospel. The gospel is like God's hound dog. Once it's on you, he's not going to lose your scent and he's going to find you. 
Now, according to the gospel that Jesus lived and the gospel that Jesus taught, the gospel, the same gospel that the apostle Paul preached and his apostles preached, he told this to Nicodemus. To get to my heaven, and I'm paraphrasing this, to get to my heaven, Nicodemus, you can't just be good. You can't just know the law. You can't just live the law. Jesus said this in John 3, you must be born again. Now, Nicodemus was a smart fellow, but he kind of struggled with that statement, you must be born again, like some of us maybe in this room go, what? Born again? Nicodemus asked this question. He said, how can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter into his mother's womb a second time and be born? As smart as Nicodemus was, he had no clue what Jesus was talking about. Jesus was not talking about merely turning over a new leaf or, or following some rules, but a complete and total transformation and overhaul of our hearts. A heart plant, you could say, a heart transplant. Now, this heart transplant cannot be accomplished by us in our human endeavors. No matter what we do, we can never change this heart where we can receive what Christ has done for us. It's only accomplished through that great physician, Jesus Christ. His hands are the only hands that are skillful enough to come into a man, a woman, a boy, a girl, and change that heart to where they have a desire for godliness, where they pan after God. But here's a question for you. Is conversion merely just believing the facts about the gospel? Is it mentally comprehending what Christ did on the cross and then me going, okay, you know, that sounds pretty good. I think that I will choose that. Or is there more to it? Some have been taught that you should have felt a certain emotion if you were truly born again, if you were truly converted. Or maybe you were supposed to have done a couple of steps in some sort of particular order or you were to say these particular words from a particular prayer. Some folks even say that if you're not led down a particular pattern of verbal salvation out of a certain version of the Bible, then you were not converted. But true conversion taught in God's Word shows that there's a change, a transformation takes place and must take place. But it's a change that we cannot do ourselves. We're incapable of it. No matter how many good deeds we do, no matter how many times we open our Bible and read, no matter how many times we give to the poor, those mean nothing if we're not truly converted. I remember growing up as a, as a kid, I grew up in a place called Bayou George, Florida. How many of you ever heard of Bayou George, Florida? There's two or three. Yeah. People who have been there or people I've talked to. Bayou George, Florida... When I was growing up, we were called dirt farmers. I have no idea what that is, but I guess every farmer does farm in the dirt. Uh, But we were poor, and we lived in a rural place called Bayou George, Florida. Uh, The requirement for living there is that you had to talk like me, so I fit in. But I remember growing up as a a young boy, it gets really hot down there in in my neck of the woods. It would be 95 degrees with 100% humidity. Some of you from the south can say, yeah, I remember that. But as a young boy, I remember during the summer, this time of year, playing out in the woods because we lived out in the middle of nowhere. Hot, humid, and just recollecting, I don't remember ever really drinking water because we didn't carry water bottles with us. 
So I don't know how we survived. Um, should have died, but perhaps we probably drank out of creeks and ditches and stagnant pools of water. I don't know. So we'd be out there playing, and you're all sweaty, and you'd have dirt in the creases of your neck. You, a lot of times I was barefoot, and I'd have dirt in between my toes and black dirt on top of my feet, up halfway up my calves, and in between my fingers. There'd even be dirt coming out of my ears, my mouth, my nose. I have no idea how that happened. But then I would hear my mama call, it's time for supper. I'd come lickly split back to the house to eat. But Florence Johnson's rules was no shirt, no shoes, and especially if you're dirty and stinky, no service. So to be able to eat dinner at my mama's table, I had to clean myself up. But of course, a lot of y'all remember this, I didn't really think that I was that dirty. I really didn't think that I smelled. My mama would say, you stink like high heavens, go wash up. And I would, why do we do that? The first thing we do is smell in our armpit. And I'd go, I don't smell that bad. Of course, I didn't pay attention to all the flies that had come in through the hole through the screen door falling out of the sky as I walked in. So all it took was a stern look from my mama for me to head down the hallway to the bathroom, wash up and get cleaned up. That was something I could do. I did it reluctantly, but I could clean myself up physically to be able to sit at the table and eat. But I had a hard time as a young boy staying clean because my nature as a boy was to get in the dirt and be dirty. You know, that's our nature as humans. Our sinful nature is we tend to like to stay in the dirt, and we don't realize how dirty and how stinky we actually are. And so, spiritually speaking, we're unable, we're not capable of cleaning ourselves up enough to sit at God's table, to be in His heaven. And that's where the glory of the gospel comes in. Like we talked about last week, Christ has done that for us. But merely knowing and agreeing with the terms of the gospel or the facts of the gospel is by no means a guarantee that you'll enter heaven. Jesus said that in Matthew chapter 7. We also see in James chapter 2 verse 19, Mark 1, 24, that the demons themselves, they believe in God. Their theology of the gospel is probably more sound than ours is. They know for a fact, but they still don't believe. They're not born again. So who then can be converted? The same question has been asked for centuries. If you're familiar with the story of the rich young ruler in Luke chapter 18, we see this rich guy comes up to Jesus, and he asks this question. He says, good master. First of all, he doesn't recognize that Jesus is the Lord of Lord and King of Kings. He recognizes him as a good teacher. The reason this rich young ruler had no idea who Jesus was because he still possessed within him a human, frail, sinful heart. So he says, good master, what must I do to inherit eternal life? What must I do to go into heaven? And so Jesus said, keep the commandments. And so the rich guy goes, whew, man, I'm in like Flynn because from the time I was young... I've kept all the commandments. But Jesus, knowing the heart of all men, knew that this guy was... I mean, he broke one of the commandments, thou shalt not lie. So he broke that one right off the bat. So Jesus then turned the tables on him and said, but there's one thing that you lack. So the rich guy, now kind of confused, he was all excited, 
And he, what's that? And Jesus said, sell everything that you have, give it to the poor, then come follow me. Remember the verse that Jesus said, for where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. This proves the fact that this guy did not have a heart that could accept what Christ had to offer because his treasure, his heart was laid up in his earthly treasures that he had. Now, those people that were watching this scene take place and they were hearing the words that were being bounced back and forth probably knew this guy. And this guy probably was an up an upstanding, outstanding citizen. He probably gave some of his money to the poor. And so the question was, in Luke 18, verses 26 through 27, we see this. Those who heard it said, then who can be saved? So they were saying, wow, if, if this fella can't get to heaven, who on earth can? And it's really interesting what Jesus responded, because Jesus always has an answer. And it's the right answer. It's a righteous answer. It's a holy answer. And it's the only answer. He said, what is impossible with man is possible with God. Man, that's exciting to know that what I can't do, God can do for me. That will make you want to go bear hunting with a switch or charge hell with a squirt gun. You think about that. What we can't do, God did through Christ. For us. Now, many of us know individuals who have claimed to be a Christian, have said, yeah, I've accepted Christ as my Savior, and for a while you've seen them, and they've been active, and then all of a sudden they, they drop off the face of Christianity, even to the point some deny the gospel, and they say, well, I don't, I don't even know if I even believe that anymore. Boy, that grieves us to the heart, and it should, and it confuses us. And it also, quite frankly, could scare you by saying, well, could that happen to me? Could I lose what I thought that I had? So there's a lot of dilemma about what is true conversion? Who can get it? How does it happen? Can you lose it? Well, in 2 Corinthians 5, 17 through 18, this is conversion in a nutshell. Paul writes this. He says, therefore... If anyone is in Christ, if anybody is a true believer, if anybody has truly been converted, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. And all this is from God, Paul says, who through Christ reconciled us to himself. So like we talked about last week, the gospel, as we hear that, the Holy Spirit uses that to create something in a man or a woman or a born girl's heart to make them have the capacity to believe. Where a change takes place in the heart, which is manifested in action through love for what we do for Christ. Here's an example of folks who had been truly converted in 1 Corinthians 6, 9 through 11. Paul pins this. He gives a warning. He says, Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. But then there's that whew clause in there. Paul says, And such 
were some of you. And such were some of us. But if we've been truly converted, born again, this is what has happened to us. And Paul says this. But you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. These folks were truly converted. There was a change in their life. Not that they started doing good works, but those good works manifested out of true conversion. James talks about that. He said, faith without works is dead. Now, God's Word tells us in Ephesians chapter 2 that before we were truly converted, if we have been truly converted this morning, that there was something different about us, and this was the difference. He says that before we were born again or saved, you were dead in your trespasses and sin. You know, a lot of us, we have memorized that, and we talk about that, but what does that really look like? Well, this is Pete Johnson's commentary on Ephesians chapter 2. Now, I'm not an expert. I'm not a medical doctor. Um, but I would guess when you're dead, you're pretty much dead. I know that's, that's deep. But a dead person can't do anything for themselves. I'm pretty sure a dead person can't tie their shoes, can't roll over, can't eat. A dead person can't call for help because a dead person does not know that he or she is dead. And plus, you wouldn't have a desire to call out for help. You wouldn't have a desire for something else because you don't know that you're dead. Because you're dead, you go, oh, that sounds silly. But if you stop and think about it, what can a dead man do other than be dead? Romans chapter 10, 10 says this, that with the heart man believes unto righteousness. So if Paul says in Ephesians 2 that we were dead in our trespasses and sin, then how can a dead heart believe? A dead heart can't believe because the spiritual heart of an unregenerated sinner is dead. There's no pulse. It's just stone cold dead. So when our hearts are changed through true conversion, there's something happens to that heart. Jesus explained this very concept to Nicodemus. He said, that which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the spirit is spirit. Here Christ is emphasizing the work that the Holy Spirit does on a person's heart that enables them to be able to believe with that heart. You can't believe with your old heart. You have to have a new heart. You have to have a heart transplant. Jesus stated in John 6, 63 to emphasize the, the work of the Spirit, and it's not what we do. It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. See, the flesh will send you to hell. In our flesh, Paul said, there is no good thing. So when conversion happens, our hearts are changed. God replaces that stony, cold heart with a new heart. Ezekiel prophesied this new covenant to the children of Israel. And he said this, and listen to this. This is in Ezekiel 36, verses 26 through 27. And see what God does for us as opposed to what we do for ourselves. It says, I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. 
And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statues and be careful to obey my rules. God's word tells us that his spirit bears witness with our spirit that we are the sons of God. That's that indwelling that comes upon us when we have been changed, when we've been converted, when we've been born again. You could call it God's gospel CPR. It's the Holy Spirit that shocks that heart of a dead, unregenerated sinner that brings him to life. And that spiritual heart starts... It makes us alive and a new creation. Once again, it's something we can't do for ourselves. And there's also all... There's a... A varied of conversion experiences. What I mean by experiences, everybody in this room right now, you could be thinking of your testimony. If we said, let's have a testimony service, people would come up and they would give a testimony of how they became a Christian. How that the Holy Spirit worked in their hearts and lives through circumstances and through conversations that at the time you had no clue because you were dead. Until the Holy Spirit regenerated your heart. Then you look back and you go, wow, I see where God did this. I see where that person said that. That the Holy Spirit used the gospel to change my life. Some people have been saved out of a wretched, wicked lifestyle. As we saw in Corinthians where it says some of you were this, some of you were that. Some of us grew up in the church. Having come down and making a decision when we were young. Shook the preacher's hand. And then later on the Holy Spirit through conviction opened our hearts and our minds, and we realized that we were not truly born again. I was in that boat. There's several of you I've talked to that were in that same boat. There's some who can tell you the exact date and time of their conversion. Some can't tell you exactly the date and time, but they can tell you, I know for a fact, I know beyond a shadow of a doubt that I've been born again and heaven will be my home. I'd like to tell you a couple of stories this morning that kind of emphasize this thing of conversion and how the Holy Spirit works to make this happen. There was a man I heard about, and this is a true story. That's bad when you preface your story with this is a true story. Okay? As a young boy, he was raised in a very, very, very religious household. His parents loved God, and they shared their beliefs with him, and he took on his parents' belief as his own because he came to realize that this is it. And he wholeheartedly accepted the religion of his parents and their beliefs about God became his own. He was extremely gifted, this young man was, academically. Uh, reading and writing, uh, he picked up on other languages really quick. He was real versed in all kinds of different literature. But what he loved the most was getting in God's Word. Man, just flipping through it and reading it and, and meditating on it and absorbing it. His parents, understanding this special gift that he had, and the impact that he could make on their community and the world at large, decided they would spare no expense, and they sent him to the very best school they could possibly send him to under the tutelage of one of the greatest biblical scholars of the day. This young man became a superstar really quick. And by the time he was out of his teen years, he had mastered the Scripture. He had probably had memorized committed most of it to memory. He was, very, he was much far advanced than the other students. And even all these other students were very serious scholars. 
That's how you got in this and you were selected. You just, you just didn't show up at the doorstep of the school. You were selected. He had great leadership abilities. He was able to debate masterfully. I mean, even some of his teachers probably couldn't handle him in a one-on-one debate. He faithfully attended every service, constantly studying God's Word. This young man's devotion to God was very noteworthy, and it was observed by all of his peers, all his teachers. So eventually he was asked to go on mission. And this mission was to go defend the faith. And he was to defend the faith against a group of heretics that were spreading a false religion, watering down the Word of God. Blasphemy was what they called it. And they also considered this a a false cult. So he was convinced beyond a shadow of doubt that this is what God put him in the world to do, to defend God. So with great zeal, he relentlessly sought out those who were perverting the truth, who would bring shame and blasphemy upon God. He had on several occasions heard the message that they preached, but it didn't faze him because he was very concrete and sure in what he believed. Because what he believed was his life. This was a holy war to him, and he felt as though that he was God's arm. A holy gladiator, you might say. But actually, a turn of events happened to this young man. And while he was out on his mission, he came across another young man who was just as zealful as him. But he was a guy that was part of this cult. And he heard him sharing what he believed. The mob was incited, and this young man who was preaching what was considered heresy or part of a cult, he was killed. And while he was being killed, he spoke in such a way that affected this young man, and he didn't even know it. So off again to defend the faith this gladiator of God, he was sent to another town to do what he deemed necessary for God. For a while now, he probably contemplated and maybe said, well, is what they're preaching and teaching, is that true? Is there any merit to this at all? But then he would say, nope, it's not. I've got to snuff this out. Perhaps he even knew some of the men and women that he had put in prison or even had killed. But seeing the steadfastness in what they believed kind of shook him to his core, perhaps. And this mission that he was on perhaps was... Maybe getting a little harder. But because of who he was, he would endure to the end. He would make sure he got the job done. That's how God had made him. Now, you, by now, you probably know who I'm talking about. I'm talking about the Apostle Paul. And his conversion on the road to Damascus was beyond miraculous. But I want to say this. Paul was a murderer. He was a liar because what he was doing was teaching against the true gospel. But God saved him. And this morning, we think about God saving grace. Think about this. It takes just as much saving grace to save us church mouses, the ones who have grown up in church all their life and have been good and everything, as it takes to convert a murderer or a prostitute or a... uh, drug pusher, the same amount, doesn't require any more, because your sin of maybe just lying put Christ on the cross just as much as Paul's sin 
of murder. His conversion on the road to Damascus was truly a transformation, a true conversion. In Acts, Paul's conversion is is mentioned three times, and also Paul refers to his conversion testimony in the epistles that he wrote to the churches. In Acts chapter 26, as he has given his testimony to King Agrippa, we see how the Holy Spirit worked in Paul's life through the gospel. One, we see that there was a personal call. So if you want to turn to Acts chapter 26, verses 12 through 18, I invite you to go there. In verse 14, we see that the call to conversion is a personal call. This call is always presented to the lost sinner as we need to hear it, according to the truth of the gospel. In verse 14, as Paul is describing this conversion that he went through, he said... I heard a voice saying to me in the Hebrew language, Saul, Saul. Now, I've read that and read that for years and years. And as I was studying this, I said, okay, that's the first time I already noticed it. Why did he put so much emphasis on I heard in the Hebrew language? Because Paul spoke several different languages, okay, very well. So why the Hebrew language? Well, you may say, well, because he was a Jew. Here's what I think, and this is Pete Johnson's commentary. You may differ. Why was it so specific? I can't even say the word. Help me out. Specific to the Hebrew language? It's because I tend to think that's where Paul was. That was his source of pride. Some of you are starting to track with me now. He classified himself as a Hebrew of the Hebrews. Man, he was, if you read in Galatians, he was super confident of his skills before his conversion. He boasted in this. It was his source of pride. If you look in Philippians chapter 3, verse 5, as he's writing this letter to the Philippians, he says this. This is what he boasted on. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of the Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteous under the law, blameless. Paul Bates was saying, look, I was good as it gets. But being as good as it got, Paul was still lost on the way to hell. But God called him out personally. Paul trusted in everything except for Christ. That is, before the Holy Spirit changed his heart. Secondly, we see the exclusiveness of the call of conversion. Salvation is through Christ alone. And we hear that and we hear that and we hear that. But until we realize and we fully come face to face with the gospel, even as a Christian, because a lot of times as Christians, we know the gospel because we hear it, but we don't really embrace it and it doesn't really fill our hearts and our lives. I used to think when I'd sit there and we'd sing songs that talked about the gospel and God's saving grace and what he did for us as a sinner, and I would see people praising God, raising their hands, I would say, what are they doing that for? Because to me... It was black words on white paper I was singing. Yeah, that's truth in there. But then when I came face to face with the gospel and realized exactly what it is, that's exciting. And then those black words on white paper become real lively words in my soul. And as I sit there, I'm able to worship God and say, Thank you, Lord, for saving my soul. So in verse 15 of Acts 26, this thing about the exclusiveness of the call of conversion... It's through Christ alone that we can obtain heaven. In verse 15, Paul hears the voice, and then he says, 
And I said, Who are you, Lord? And the Lord said, Don't miss this. I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. To me, that gives me a sense of excitement because this was Jesus he met on the road to Damascus. It wasn't an animal form. It wasn't uh, another deity. It wasn't Jesus in the form of another human being. There was no doubt in Paul's mind that it was Jesus Christ who he met on that day. Salvation is only through Jesus Christ. Conversion doesn't transform us physically. If you're born short, you're still going to be short. If you're born ugly, you'll still be ugly. I mean, there's some changes you could do physically, but the physical part doesn't change. Our intellect stays the same. If you're super, super smart, when God saves you, you'll still be super, super smart. And God will be able to use that for the furtherance of His gospel and His kingdom. It doesn't change our present circumstances a lot of times. Remember the thief on the cross? He accepted the gospel. He is saved, but he still died. So the gospel, accepting the gospel, is not going to change necessarily your circumstances. It's not going to change your physical or your intellectual capabilities. But what it's going to do, like we said earlier, is going to change your heart to where you can believe that the gospel is real. Not just up here, but you believe it, you live it. Now, as we become Christians, it does not automatically take away all our sin because we're going to struggle with sin, folks, till the day they lay us in the ground. The Apostle Paul said that thing. He said, in my flesh there's no good thing. When I, I found this law out, when I want to do good, evil is always present with me. The things I want to do, I don't. The things I don't want to do, those are the things I want to do. Even the Apostle Paul, after his great conversion, struggled with sin. But because of the Holy Spirit working in him, he was able to say, no. I'm not going to do that. That wicked thought comes into my mind, that lustful thought. Nope, I'm not going to do that. That's the power of the Holy Spirit working in a truly converted person. And this is called the process of sanctification. We sang about that. As we get into God's Word, and as we spend time in the church, as we spend time fellowshipping with one another, Christ grows us. The Word of God grows. The Holy Spirit begins to make us stronger. And our desires change. And the way we love one another changes. A true believer, a true convert of Christ will, like I said, pan. You know what that means when I say pan after God? Remember those old gold miners? They would work hours and they were relentless getting stuff in the pan. And they would work that pan trying to find a little bit of gold. A true believer pans after godliness and holiness. That's your desire. And when you do sin, man, the guilt of sin comes upon you because you're sinning against a holy God. You want to get rid of it. You want to turn. You want to repent. A true believer does. Here's something I want you to look at. So I'm going to ask you to open your Bibles again. 1 John chapter 3, verses 4 through 10. The apostle John, who was the longest living apostle who knew Jesus quite well, understood this thing of conversion, salvation, born again, quite well, penned this. Some people say, well, you can't really tell if someone's a true believer or not. Well, I disagree. I believe you can. 1 John 3, 4 through 10 is a good test to apply to if someone has truly been converted, if you have truly been converted this morning. 
says here, everyone who makes a practicing of sinning also practices lawlessness. You know that he, talking about Jesus, appeared in order to take away sins. And in him, there is no sin. No one who abides in him keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. These are some hard words, folks. Little children, here's another warning. Let no one deceive you. We've heard that word three times this morning. Don't be deceived. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil. For the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning. For God's seed, that Holy Spirit, abides in him. And he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. Here it is. By this, it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. As I said earlier, as a, as a truly born-again believer, we're going to sin. We're going to make mistakes. But the difference is that we want to confess our sins and repent. An unregenerated person just continues in the same thing as says in the Proverbs, as a dog returneth to its vomit. That's gross. But that's how our sin is as God looks upon it. So an unconverted person will just continue practicing in their sin and make excuses. But a real born-again person, John says it right here. It's not Pete Johnson's word. This is John's. You guys sat at Jesus' feet who leaned against Jesus at the Last Supper. And I would say he knows more than me. That's what John says. Now, concluding, conversion. What is it? It's being born again, receiving a new heart through the work of the Holy Spirit. Nothing that we can do. It's not turning over a new leaf. It's not, well, I'm going to stop doing that. I'm going to stop doing this. I'm going to start doing that or start doing this. It's God giving you a new heart. And it's a new heart so that you can believe. So your spiritual pumper is starting to go now. And you realize at that moment that you are dead. And that's when you come to Christ asking for forgiveness and faith for what he did. Conversion, as we looked at, is a personal call. We can't make it happen. We can't initiate the call. God does that. As we know in Romans, says no one is righteous. No, not one. No one seeks after God. Before you were born again, you were not seeking after God. You may have thought you were seeking after God, but God's word says otherwise. Jesus said this in John six forty four: No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. You look at the story of Lazarus. That's a great example of the gospel, and that's a great example of that personal call and conversion. What would it happen if Jesus went to that graveyard where Lazarus was buried and he said, come forth. All these dead people would have came up. But what did he say? He said, Lazarus. He called him out by name. Come forth. If you read the end of that story, a lot of times we kind of pass over that. But what's really interesting, Jesus said when he came out of the tomb all stinky and wrapped up, Jesus said, take off the wrappings and let him loose. It reminds me of Jesus said, whom the Son sets free is free indeed. 
Also, conversion is an exclusive call. We talked about that last week as well. It comes only through Jesus Christ. Doubting Thomas asked Jesus this question when Jesus was talking to the disciples. said, I'm fixing to go, and the way that I go, you know. Thomas said, how can we know the way, the way to heaven? Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father except through me. The exclusiveness of the call is only through Jesus. It's also a call with an everlasting promise. So once we're saved, the Bible teaches that we're secure. You cannot lose your salvation if you've been truly converted. That's the, that's, to me, that's fantastic. Romans 8 tells us this. Apostle Paul said, I'm convinced that neither life nor death can separate us from the love of Christ. Ephesians 4.30 says, you are sealed with the Spirit for the day of redemption. And in Jesus' words, if you don't believe Paul... In John 10, he said this, My sheep hear my voice. It's that personal call. And I know them. There's that communion. God's Spirit bears witness with our spirits that we are the sons of God. And they what? And they follow me. But it gets better. Jesus said, I give them eternal life, and they will never perish. And no one, no man, the King James Version says, can snatch them out of my hand. Folks, that's the glory of being truly converted. So how does this relate to the church and and a healthy church? Why is understanding this make a church healthy? Well, the church body is to be made up of born-again believers, those who confess Christ, those who have been converted. So just as the nation of Israel was set apart to be a holy nation, to be a beacon of light to all those pagan nations around them, so is the church to be a beacon of light to the lost. So when the lost looks into the church, what do they see? They should see a lively, regenerated, born-again group of people who love Christ, love each other, doing all these crazy things that people who are not saved just don't understand. If a church does not preach and teach the true gospel, how can there be true conversion? Now, we know that God's going to save And God does save. But if the church is filled with unregenerate lost people, opposed to being filled with people who are saved. Remember in Acts, that God added to the church daily as they were getting saved? Then we failed to accomplish our mission. I'm reminded of what the angel said to the disciples when they ran to the tomb to see if it was really true that Jesus had resurrected. So they come running in. Is it true? Is it true? Is it true? The angel says this, Why seek ye the living among the dead? So what benefit is it for the lost when they come into the church and they come into a morgue? They see that we're no different than them. So why would they want this precious gift? At the personal level, the application is quite simple. If you were here last week, this ties into last week. Here it is. If you are not truly born again, I'm not going to mix words, then you're truly going to hell. That's not Pete Johnson's interpretation. That's what God's word says. I want to end with a story that I heard growing up from a North Carolina pastor that I heard, and now that I look back, 
man, I say, wow, this is truly a good thing of conversion. I know I'm going a little late, but I want to share this with you. It was a hunter. This guy was well known. I mean, everybody knew who this guy was. If you said his name, people knew what kind of great hunter. He was a guide. He could take you out in the woods. You would never get lost. He'd bring you back safe. You could depend on this guy. If you wanted to hunt, whatever game you wanted to go after, he could get. Whatever fish, he could put you on it. One day, he went out for a walk in the woods. He had written all kinds of books of how to survive in the woods, how not to get lost in the woods. Everybody knew him as this great guide and hunter. So he's out walking in the woods and starting to get close to getting dark. So he says, well, let me go back. So he starts walking and he thought across his mind, well, okay, this don't look familiar. But he says, well, I can't be lost. There's no way that I'm lost because I've, I've written all these books and no, no, no. So he keeps walking. Then he comes back to the same spot that he started in. He goes, now he's getting really worried. He's going, ah, uh, maybe I'm lost. No, no, I cannot be lost. Because I remember I wrote that book on how not to get lost in the woods. Uh, I've taught people how not to get lost in the woods. There's no way that I'm lost. He starts walking around and he comes back to the same spot he does again. Now he's in a panic because he goes, what if I'm lost? What will people think if they know that I got lost in the woods when I've written all these books and I've had all these seminars on how not to get lost in the woods. I'm a, I'm a hunter. I'm a guide. I don't get lost. started getting dark. In the distance, he hears people calling his name out. Man, he, he wants to get on that log and, and shout, I'm over here. I'm here. I'm lost. But he just can't because what will these people think if they realize maybe I, maybe I can just hear their voices and maybe I can pick my way through the woods and find out. It's starting to get dark now. And he sees in the distance, he sees, flat, he sees flashlights. And he hears people calling his name out frantically and in love. And he wants to cry out and say, I'm lost. I am. I'm over here. And as the lights start fading away, he finally, what we call back home, he hollers calf rope. He just gives up. And he screams as loud as he can, I'm lost. I'm over here. Save me. You know, that was my testimony actually growing up in the church. I was in the church. I used to sing in front of a bunch of people. I had recorded a Christian album. I walked down the aisle when I was six years old, eight years old. I signed a little card, shook the preacher's hand, said, you're good to go now. But there was no change. When I was 15, I rededicated my life to Christ because there was just something not right. Nothing changed. It wasn't until I was 28 years old and I heard a stuttering preacher from Texas preach the gospel. I have no idea what he preached on. But the Holy Spirit convicted me and I knew right then and there, Pete Johnson, you are lost and dying to go into hell. I struggle with that. just like that great guy and that hunter because what will people think if they know I'm lost? Man, I've, I've sang in front of these people. Uh, I've taught Sunday school. And maybe here this morning, that's you. Maybe you're sitting on that log and you're contemplating, oh, I've been in this church for 20 years. What will people think? You know what will people think? People will think, praise the Lord. Another lost sheep has come to Christ. 